0: Hello America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from just the news where, my gosh, there's a ton of news going on today. Lots of important things. The Democratic convention wraps up tonight. Joe Biden will accept the nomination. Kamala Harris did so last night. uh, And uh, after being wound up uh, or set up by uh, Barack Obama's very controversial speech attacking Donald Trump, very seldom for former presidents to attack the current president. So uh, a lot of news going on there. We're going to talk about that. And today we have a very special guest, somebody who was instrumental in the Trump economy. Steve Moore is joining us. The economist we will have him and a whole lot more right after this commercial break. History, economics, the great works of literature, the meaning of the U.S. Constitution. Did you study these things in school? Probably not. Or even if you did, like I did. Maybe it's time for a refresher. Time and technology have changed a lot of things, but they have not changed basic fundamental truths about the world and our place in it as America. That's why I'm so excited that Hillsdale College is offering more than 40 free online courses in the most important and enduring subject. You can learn about the works of C.S. Lewis, the stories in the book of Genesis, the meaning of the U.S. Constitution, the rise and fall of the Roman Republic, or the history of the ancient Christian church with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, you heard me for free. You don't know, get anything free in the Biden economy today. I personally recommend you sign up for the American citizenship and its decline. It's with my good friend, the great historian, Victor Davis Hansen. In this eight lecture course, VDH, as I like to call them, explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. In a few minutes, Steve Moore, the economist who had a big role in Trumponomics, is going to be joining us. We got a lot to talk about the election, the difference between the Biden economic plan, the Trump economic plan, the pandemic. How do we get the economy back? Will we ever shrink this bulging government we have? That's another question we're going to ask Steve Moore. You're going to love this conversation. He is one of the most energetic big thought economists that uh, the conservatives have. And uh, I think you're going to uh, learn a lot in the a uh, few things. I, I, I wonder, and I know one of my questions is going to be, why are people leaving New York and California and going to places like Idaho and Texas and Tennessee and Florida? I think Steve will be able to provide a cogent answer. But before we get to that, I want to get you caught up on some news that I think is very important. Uh, we have been following the Russia collusion delusion for three and a half years. I want to bring you up to one dev- speed on one development, and then I'm going to pivot to another issue. Um, it, yesterday, Kevin Smith, the ex-FBI attorney, the man who doctored uh, uh, a memo and deceived the FISA court by doing so, trying to hide the fact that Carter Page was a source for the CIA when the FBI was trying to convince the court he was a informer stooge. Uh, asset of the Russian government. That turned out to be false. He pled guilty. We knew about this last Friday and we talked about it in last Friday's uh, podcast, but uh, the plea today is the first criminal uh, guilty plea that has been secured by John Durham. And um, it is, uh, you know, the first accountability, not a big accountability, quite frankly, you and I and a couple of high school kids that were aspiring to be lawyers probably could have wrote this indictment and secured it. But we do have a guilty plea. And I just want to point out a couple things that occurred in the hearing yesterday and leading up to the hearing because people ask me, is there going to be more? Or is this all that it is? Again, nobody knows until grand jury indicts whether more things will occur. Nobody knows what's going on in John Durham's head except John Durham and his team in Bill Barr. You know why? John Durham doesn't leak like the Comey FBI, the McCabe FBI, uh, like the Lynch and Holder Justice Departments did. He has been a tight ship, a leak free. Uh, prosecution, which as a journalist is kind of frustrating. I wish there were leaks because I'm a journalist, but uh, he's, he's done it the right way. But there were a couple of little clues in yesterday's hearing that I think are very important. And people are hung up on one thing. I know those who want accountability were a little frustrated yesterday when uh, the judge allowed Smith to say, yes, I doctored that document. I did so intentionally, knowingly and willfully. It was wrong of me, but I thought the information I was adding to it was true. That may be true. He may have thought that uh, the term source wasn't the right term. Once he doctored the document, it did not matter. It's a crime to falsify a document and then submit it to the court as though it's true. He deserves the criminal conviction that he pled to yesterday. I wouldn't get hung up on that. Here's what I would get focused on. There are two things. One is in the actual um, criminal information, the, the uh, conspiracy or the document that lays out what Smith did wrong. John Durham very crafty prosecutor when he put he's probably chose every word in that court document uh, for a reason well here is one so a few words I'm going to point out to you he goes out of his way to say that white Klein Smith misled the court by falsifying the document for the fourth and final FISA the one that was signed in June of 17 that extended from nine months to a year the FBI's now we know unlawful uh, monitoring of Carter Page and the Russia uh, Trump uh, team uh, Uh, The three prior FISA's were also inaccurate, knowingly and willfully inaccurate. How do we know that? John Durham says and reveals that the Crossfire Hurricane team, that's the team run by Pete Strzok, they were told in August of 2016, nearly a year before Klein-Smith doctors the document to keep the the bogus uh, argument going, the bogus collusion claim going. But in August of 16, the FBI leadership of the Crossfire Hurricane team was told then, Carter Page was a CIA asset, not a Russian stooge. And John Durham goes out of his way to point out they did not tell the court. That's another crime. What John Durham is telling us is that there are other people that were involved in deceiving the court before Smith did the fact. In fact, Kleinsmith's doctoring of the document is sort of like the end of the conspiracy, the end of that I think that those words were carefully chosen by John Durham to highlight what could be coming in the future. But I want to point one other thing out. In the elocution, when, when the judge is walking through KleinSmith, are you doing this a free will? Do you understand? Do you dispute anything? Do you think you're innocent and you're just pleading guilty? And Klein-Smith, you know, says, no, I'm, I, I take responsibility for my actions. One of the things that are mentioned is the plea deal agreement, which we haven't seen yet. We're trying to get our hands on it. But the plea deal agreement Apparently states that Klein Smith will not be prosecuted for other activities uh, related to his work at the FBI that may have been criminal. In other words, John Durham has reason to believe that there were other crimes committed on Klein Smith. Watch now. Klein Smith is one of the lawyers working on the FISA, but that that signals. You don't need to put that language in if this was a rifle shot crime. If you know, if someone goes into a store one time and robs a store, you don't say we're not going to prosecute you for other things that we don't think you did. John Durham went out of his way in this prosecutive agreement to make clear that Klein Smith is not going to be charged for other crimes. That means he believes there are other crimes that were committed. I would keep an eye on this. I suspect, and again, it won't matter unless a grand jury hands up an indictment. If John Durham doesn't ask for an indictment, it's not going to matter. But there are some signs, as someone who's watched the federal court system for 30 years, there are some signs uh, in this Klein-Smith court appearance yesterday in the Klein-Smith court documents that there's a larger role of crimes. And I know going will say, of course there is. Well, but we, we see it as at layman. Does a prosecutor see a way to make a prosecution in a court of law in the District of Columbia? It appears that John Durham does from these little hints that occur in the court proceeding, in the court documents. So I would keep an eye on this. I think Durham is still going to be an important player. And I'd also keep an eye on the Mike Flynn prosecutor, Jensen, and the um, uh, Texas prosecutor, John Bash, who are looking at unmasking and unrelated national security um, uh, unmaskings or uh, record searching of Americans. Uh, All three of these, I think, will ultimately uh, give or provide some element of um, uh, accountability when we're done. But I do think... Durham has get shine, uh, shown a light on some other crimes that may be forthcoming and may be charged in the in the coming weeks or months. Again, no one will know when, but at least there's one accountability in the criminal courts now in the books. Kevin Kleinsmith guilty of falsifying a document to make it look like Carter Page was a Russian stooge when in fact he was a CIA asset, someone controlled and aiding the US intelligence community, not Vladimir Putin's intelligence services. What a travesty to go back and read the 2017 stories and see how Carter Page was maligned and smeared and uh, dragged through the mud by the media and those leakers at the CIA, the FBI, Fusion GPS, Christopher Steele, all those who created a false portrait of a man who actually was trying to help his country. We're going to try to get Carter Page back on the show. Now, one more thing. Today, just a little while ago, President Trump met with the new prime minister of Iraq. And you say, "Ah, another prime minister, another Iraq, sounds familiar. Well, I I, uh, have done a lot of work on this new prime minister. His name is Mustafa al Qadami. He is a former human rights activist when Saddam Hussein was torturing people in Iraq and using chemical weapons against his people. He uh, is a scholar. He's somebody who wrote, Wonderful columns about what Iraq could be—not what it is, but what it could be. He became the intelligence chief of Iraq in uh, under just before Donald Trump came in, and he was a very important intelligence ally of the Trump administration at a time when Iraq uh, was falling apart with ISIS and with all of the intrusions that the Iranian-backed militias created the chaos, kind of like what they're doing in our streets today. The militias in Iraq are not that far different from the tactics we've seen in Portland, Seattle, Chicago, New York, and other places, Minneapolis, where uh, violence and urban warfare has been waged against the American people, particularly urban African-Americans whose businesses have been destroyed or delayed by these incessant uh, riots. But um, Al Alcademy, has uh, really begun to win the confidence of the US government. Basically for the last 10 years, the US government hasn't felt good about Iraq's leadership. They have in this man, you who know, still has tenuous hold on power. He could be gone, he might be around, but they have in this man a partner that has the potential to get our troops out of Iraq for good, to build a strong economy that would ward off Iranian intrusion and future ISIS movements. You know, If ISIS is gone, maybe some other extremists will try to fill the void. One of the things that President Trump understands that our Western allies understand that the Gulf Arab allies that we have, Saudi Arabia, UAE, uh, Bahrain, uh, uh, Kuwait, they understand that if you can prop up and make strong and and make vibrant an Iraq economy, the Iraqi people will be stronger to ward off Iran extremists, other threats that they have been so um, uh, fallen prey to in the last uh, five to six to seven years. President Trump our great soldiers, the Pentagon, the defense secretary, they helped eradicate ISIS in uh, Iraq. The country is a little bit more stable as a result, maybe quite a bit more stable. Still have a lot of problems, particularly those Iranian-backed militias. But Al-Khattomi is here meeting with the president. President Trump has made a big bet, is making a big bet, on that Al-Khattomi will be able to improve security and economy and give our chance to bring our our boys, our girls home, those wonderful troops uh, that have fought this war for 17 years in Iraq, 17 plus years in Iraq. Uh, This is a moment you should focus on. We got a lot of distractions, we got uh, COVID, we've got uh, protests, we've got racial justice, we've got economic crisis, unemployment, I know all the things we got, but Iraq could become one of the great success stories just like what we saw in the Middle East last week with the peace deal between UAE um, and um, uh, Israel historic but we are going to try to uh, prop Iraq up in the next few weeks, and we're seeing a lot of things. Uh, the Sunni Arab Gulf states are coming in to help. That means it's a regional solution, not a top-down nation-building exercise by the United States. We're keeping our military there. al qadimi doesn't want our troops fighting Iraq's war. He wants his troops to do so. He promises to clean up the ragtag thing that currently provides security of, uh, from Iraq and militias, policemen, troops. More like America, more like what we did in Colombia, in Latin America in the 1990s, to make a fighting force that made Colombia independent of U.S. troops there. This is a very important issue to watch. Uh, I have a story up on justthenews.com. Please see what... um, Uh, I wrote there, uh, and among all of our distractions, you have to stay focused on this Iraq issue. It's a very important issue for the future of America, for our military, for stability in the Middle East, for prosperity for the Iraqi people who have suffered through 17 painful years of war and blight. So important day. Remember that name, Mustafa al-Kademi. I suspect if President Trump succeeds, if the United States succeed, if the Arab partners uh, succeed, uh, you may see a success story pulled out of the long, painful path that we've all pursued in Iraq. All right, when we come back, Steve Moore, the extraordinary economist, somebody you're going to want to hear from. He's joining us for a half hour, great conversation, buckle your seatbelt. He's full of energy, full of ideas, full of news. We'll be right back in a few minutes. You're listening to John Solomon Reports, the podcast from justthenews.com. all right folks welcome back from the commercial break and as promised a very very special guest steve moore one of the great economists in america one of the important advisors to president trump one of the the people that helped us build Trumponomics, uh is joining us steve thank you for for joining john solomon reports today hi
1: john uh, great to be with you and congratulations on the success of uh, just the news
0: ah thank you very much well we're honored to have you on so there's so much to talk about but i wanted to um start by everybody that I talk to today wants to know what is the state of economy coming out of this pandemic what are the signs you see where are we going to go what are the the signs to watch for for improvement I think a lot of people are impressed that the economy hasn't gotten as bad as people feared but how do we get out of these how do we get out of this and keep growing uh, the way we were before uh, the pandemic uh-huh. hit in march? <laughs>
1: Well, wow, that's, a, that's, that's right an easy question. question. So I'll yeah. make a couple, couple, a couple of quick observations. Number one, I, I do believe that what we've done in the last four or five months in this country has been the greatest, one of the greatest three or four mistakes in the history of our country. Uh, locking down our economy uh, had no effect whatsoever on health outcomes. We know that now, uh, just by like comparing states that, you know, had very strict lockdowns with states that didn't. In fact, it would it looks almost the opposite. The states with the strictest Lockdown, stay-at-home orders actually had the highest death rates and highest hospitalization rates. Um, so there's just no evidence that there was any positive impact of the uh, of the, of the uh, lockdown. Uh, number two, uh, we've done substantial, substantial damage to our economy. And I think it's going to take a long, long time to recover from this, frankly. I, I think it could be, you know, years before we get back to where we wow. were. Uh, because we lost so many millions of businesses. you know I'm on the board of two small businesses that were you know good startups that these people had put years of their lives into and uh, they just couldn't survive. you know when when you just shut everything down, right. no income came in they had to sell their assets they had to sell their patents. So um, number hmm. one, we did a lot of damage folks and, I, and one of my messages, Never, never, never again should we do what we did, where we locked down the economy like this and shut down our businesses and put you know tens of millions of Americans into the unemployment line. And I say that, by the way, John, because you hear Democrats, people like Joe Biden and uh, some of their top economists and help people saying, "Oh, well, maybe we need another lockdown of the economy." I'm like these people, nuts. I mean, I saw this one report saying maybe we need another four to six week of total lockdown of our economy. Yeah, that I would, read that. That would cause uh, unbelievable misery for the American people. So that being the case, um, I am actually surprised at the <laughs> John, quite frankly, I'm very surprised at how rapidly the economy has come back. We've created 9.3 million jobs in the last three months. That's, yeah, that's a lot. Unheard of. Now, look, yeah. we lost 20. We lost 20 million. So I'm right? not going to sugarcoat it. I think it takes it's going to take a lot of very thoughtful pro growth policies. That's one of the reasons I think this is such an incredibly enormously important election because if we have an economy that's hobbled by the policies of the shutdown, uh, you know, in in uh, late fall and then, you know, God forbid Joe Biden is elected president with those policies that he is called for and I have to give Joe Biden a lot of credit. I mean, he has told the American people flat out what he's going to do. Yeah, he's going to massively no raise taxes. It. Right. I mean, most of the time, presidential candidates, you know, kind of hide what they're going to do. Biden has done, I mean, every American should read the document because it is harrowing. It's basically shut down the American oil and gas industry. Well, that's 8 million jobs right down the drain right there. And right. by the way, oil and gas industry has been the top performing industry in the economy for the last 10 years. Uh, they want to massively raise taxes on, quote, the rich, which means investors and small business owners, Uh, they want to um, increase regulation, Um, and it would be very, very negative. So I think that's why this is a really important election.
0: Yeah, there's no doubt, and you're right. I mean, we're gonna hear that economic vision tonight when uh, Joe Biden gives his um, acceptance speech, and I think that um, people need to compare where it is. When I talk to a lot of folks, uh, this seems to be a choice about the lean-in economic strategy that is Trumponomics that you helped create, and the kind of way that the government uh, uh, intervened in the economy and sort of kept a foot on it during the Obama Biden years. Biden is is going back to the Obama way, but adding in a lot of the AOC, Bernie Sanders, snap-ins. Is that the right way to look at the difference between the two uh, approaches I think to the economy? That, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good summary. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I listened to Bill Clinton um, the other night. He, uh, By the way, the Democrats, are the modern-day Democrats are kind of embarrassed by Bill Clinton in terms of his policies. But the reason I bring up Bill Clinton is, you know, 25 years ago, you know, when Bill Clinton was president, we cut the capital gains tax. We did welfare reform. We did free trade. We right. did, uh, you know, um, very uh, – we balanced the budget four times. I mean, Democrats don't believe in any of those things today, uh, which is really – I think people have to really understand the dramatic left-wing takeover of the party. And Joe Biden, believe it or not, John, is running to the left of Barack Obama.
0: It's true. Yeah. No, it's very true. We, we just did an analysis the other day of all the places where he basically moves left of Obama. And certainly he's, he's a mile away from the Bill Clinton. I mean, Bill Clinton was a pretty friendly economic uh, president. He in- was. Yeah. And had a great economy was, I mean, for most of us, but most of the time. We did. And,
1: and a booming stock market. And, yeah. You know, sometimes a moderate Democrat. And look, I, I'm a Republican, but I do think it is tragic what has happened to the Democratic Party. It's AOC's party. It's the party of a, a very radical left. Yeah. And one of the reasons I think in the end, I still think Trump is going to win this election. And I think he will, because in the end of the day, I think people are going to go to the voting booth. It's not going to be a popularity contest. It will be, who do I really think can rebuild this economy? And you just put side by side, uh, you know, the the Trump policies of cut taxes, reduce regulation, better trade deals, uh, you know, um, promote American energy, oil and gas and coal and all the amazing resources we have versus the Biden uh, leftist agenda. And I think at the end of the day, Americans may say, you know, I don't like Donald Trump very much. I don't. I don't like his personality i don't right. like the way he acts but you know what i like the results we had john you know that's why i wrote the book uh trump anonymous we had the best economy in 30 years prior to the pandemic yeah. we had the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years we had the biggest wage gains in 25 years we had the lowest poverty rate people don't realize this i mean black lives matter trump is a racist come on this president created the lowest unemployment rate for black Americans in 50 years, the lowest poverty rate for black children in 30 years, uh, the biggest gain in wages for blacks in—there yeah, there were bigger wage gains for black Americans in three years under Trump than under eight years under Obama. That's
0: that's what's amazing about this. You know, if you watched as I've watched the Democratic Convention, the word grievance keeps coming up because it seems like they have a grievance every few minutes and, you know, one of the, the biggest grievances, well, is that uh, minorities uh, still don't have the rungs on the ladder that, that white folks do. And the, the truth of the matter is, to make that argument, you have to ignore the last three years of what Trump did, because the growth is significantly there in, in the, uh, the Hispanic and, and the um, African-American yeah. uh, uh, business box and uh, the number of millionaires, uh, black millionaires, has grown by a large number under uh, Trump. There's all these amazing statistics, and they have to ignore those statistics in order to keep their grievance argument uh, going. Do you think um, the president has the right economic message now, or what would you advise next week when he's on the podium and he gives his acceptance speech? How should he focus uh, the question in this race?
1: I like the line that he's been using, John, and that he should say over and over and over again, which is a very simple message, but it rings true with people. I rebuilt the American economy once. I'm the guy who can do it again. Yeah. And he just has to say that over and over. And he should say, by the way, the Democrats keep criticizing him for his handling of the coronavirus. And but, but there were certainly mistakes made. As I said, I think shutting down the economy was right. a, a horrific mistake, but- you know, he'd say, well, what, what would you have done differently? I mean, uh, let's look at the places where uh, the economy has been ruined and where the uh, you know, death rates have been highest. Well, let's see. New York, New Jersey, Illinois, uh, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Massachusetts. What do all those states have in common? Oh, yes, they're all blue states run by Democrats. Which are the states that have the highest unemployment rates uh, today? Well, let's see. California, uh, New York, New Jersey, uh, Illinois. Massachusetts, Rhode Island. Oh, yeah, they're all blue states. I I think Trump really needs to make the case. I'm just a big believer in the red state, blue state dichotomy. Liberals hate that. They hate that because they know they have a problem. Where are people leaving, John? They're leaving New York. They're leaving Illinois. They're leaving California. They're leaving Massachusetts. They're leaving Rhode Island. They're leaving Pennsylvania. They're leaving Michigan. Where are they going? They're going to Tennessee. They're going to Texas. They're going to Arizona. They're going to South Carolina. They're going to Florida. Uh, this is people are voting with their feet against the policies of blue state America. What Democrats basically say is we want to make America more look more like New York, and what we as Republicans have to say is we want to make America look more like Florida and Texas and Tennessee because those states are absolutely booming.
0: Yeah, yeah people want to go where there's prosperity and freedom and uh, lower taxes, or and no taxes and low taxes.
1: And low right? taxes. low taxes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, that's that's the key and. Uh, it does change the political map. At some point, those states could become a lot more purple because of this migration. But um, you have to you have to wonder what um, what effect it has on electoral politics five or ten years from now. But right now, the, the migration patterns are the ultimate statement of voting, which is people are leaving states with high taxes, high regulation, and uh, and low freedom. I think that's really what we're learning. The, uh, we did
1: a we do a study, John. Every uh, we've done it for fourteen years. Hart uh, Lapper and I for ALEC, rating the states in terms of their economic um, outlook and which right. states have the best economic outlook. Now, there is one state, John, that for 14 straight years has come out number one. And I, I wonder if you can guess what, because most people get it wrong. Can you guess what state that is?
0: Comes out number one for uh, best economic, economic outlook. That, that's
1: um, policies. That's pro-growth policies.
0: Wow, so I would, um, I want to say Texas, just because I like big things, but uh, maybe not Texas. What do you think? Texas would be my pick.
1: Okay, so Texas number four, and that's a comment.
0: Utah,
1: Utah, every single year for 14 years has been, you know, think about it, Utah has a low flat rate tax, no death tax, Uh, it has has, uh, no pension problems. They've balanced their budget. By the way, the blue states are crying for more money from the federal government. Utah's right. already balanced their budget this year. Uh, Utah has the youngest population in the country uh, because Mormons have a lot of kids. They do. Uh, and it's a you know, beautiful state, and it's pro-business. And people are moving there in droves. Utah is the state of the future. It's going to be in the West. It's going to be the new California. They call it Silicon Valley on the
0: slopes. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Now, I didn't know that, I, and I, I was four off from the number one slot. That's pretty good. So what are the other states? So what, what follows after Utah in your, in your ratings?
1: Oh, so, uh other states that get it right. I mean, you mentioned Texas, obviously right. Florida, Tennessee, Arizona. Um, you've got Idaho. <laughs> Something about those Mormons. How about that? that it right. uh, and these are states that, you know, have seen a lot. You're right. They are seeing a lot of population movements coming in from states like California and Washington. And, And that, you know, we will see how that alters the political map. But the big story, I think, is just the meltdown of blue state America. These states, I mean, New York, just let me give you an example. New York, over the last 10 years, on net, on net, New York has lost almost a million and a half people.
2: That's amazing. And everybody talks
1: about what a great, what a great, what a great Governor Cuomo is. Wow, he's fantastic, (laughs) isn't he? I mean, they've had the death rate from coronavirus in New York is eight times higher than the national average.
0: All right, see. So we've been talking about this election sort of being a referendum between on blue state and blue city failures, whether you're Bill de Blasio or uh, Andrew Cuomo. How important an issue is that going to become to voters as we get closer to election day?
2: I think it's gonna be a huge problem, John, for for Democrats because their one real Achilles heel is the fact that so many of these states that have already adopted these progressive policies are just melting down. I mean, you see this in New York, you see this in uh, New Jersey, you see it in Connecticut, you see it in my home state of Illinois, which is tragic uh, what's happened in Illinois. They've lost 800,000 people over the last uh, 10 years. So, I think people are going to say, wait a minute, do I really want to make uh, the Democrats are basically saying, let's make America look more like New York. And what Republicans need to say is, no, we want to make America more like Texas and Tennessee and Arizona and Florida states that are working.
0: Yeah, that's going to definitely be an important contrast. And uh, it seems as though the president and his campaign and his surrogates are already beginning to hit that message, and uh, I suspect uh, starting next week, we'll start to hear a lot about a San Francisco liberal named Kamala Harris. I think you'll hear San Francisco combined with liberal a lot uh, uh, when it comes to her. Um, you've been instrumental on another uh, front uh, on the economy that I want to uh, switch to for a second, and that is China. Uh, obviously, we're in a global struggle for for economic supremacy with Beijing, the um the uh, pandemic has created a lot of uh, trouble for our economy. But as you handicap where we are in this race, do you, do you feel like we're headed towards a good resolution with China? Are we headed for a more extended war? I thought China blinked the other day. You wouldn't tell from the media because they haven't reported this. But it looks like China just made a whole bunch of investment in agricultural products from the U.S., Uh, corn and other products. And I wonder if you can handicap for us what's going on in that relationship and how do you think it will play out over the next uh, two, three years?
2: Well, Donald Trump is the first uh, president or major presidential candidate in the last 30 years who has called out China for what it is. It is not a friendly power. It is uh, it is not an ally. They are um, they are actually um, uh, an adversary to the United States and they're dangerous. And I, I really regard China as, as Japan circa 1939. I really think that's how dangerous they are in terms of their wow. um, aggressive military behavior and also, you know, their predatory economic practices, which we can't put up with any longer. And by the way, John, you know, you know me for a long time. I'm a free trade guy. I do. I do believe in free trade, but it's hard to be involved in free trade when you have a country that is trying to bury you. As the, yeah. remember that famous, uh, you know, the Soviet Union. You know, we will bury you, and so we got to be awake to this. And I guarantee you, the candidate of choice for Beijing is Joe Biden. There's no question. I mean, they would love to see Joe Biden elected and adapt, adapt these policies because the big winner will be China. They will. They will become the economic superpower if we, you know, adopt the kind of policies. That injure our own economy. So I think it's a it's a big issue. I've I've said, look, there's four issues. I think well, the reason I think Trump are going to win number one, China. There's no question. I mean, Biden has basically been a patsy his whole career when it comes to China. The second is the border. I mean, the Democrats are for open borders. And I'm, I'm a pro-immigration guy, but right. we need to have a secure border. And Democrats just don't believe that. The third is, you know, uh, public safety, which I think is going to be a gigantic issue. Uh, Democrats refuse to condemn the violence and the criminal activity that, by the way, is destroying the very minorities that they say they care about. Uh, and the fourth is, overall, the economy. And I think those four things Trump has to hit on all of those themes. Uh, and and if he does, I think he can win.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of people who are looking at the numbers, there's been a, an interesting movement in the last month. And of course, polls are very volatile. It doesn't matter in August what the polls show. Really, people don't focus until late September, early October, maybe with early voting, maybe a little earlier than that now. But uh, you see some interesting movements, suburban women, which I assume uh, has to do with the security issue, and then African-American and... Uh, Latino voters. If you look at the CNN poll this week, there was a pretty significant jump, particularly in the battleground states. Uh, and it seems as though that combination of security and economic arguments is resonating in those key blocks that have traditionally, uh, certainly in uh, the last few years, been strongly in the Democratic camp. So um, it's well, going you, to be interesting. Look, look
2: at the people have been, I mean, this is an important point that uh, Trump has. Who are the victims of the chaos and the mayhem? and the arson and the criminal activity. By the way, these are professional criminal gangs that are yeah, destroying right. Seattle and Portland and San Francisco and Chicago and Minneapolis and New York. Uh, and they're the victims. It's immigrant groups. They're minorities. They're black families and black-owned businesses. 40% of black-owned businesses have gone bankrupt or are in financial distress right now. Wow. And, and that's that's a really tragic thing. I actually think Trump could win a record uh, percentage of black and Hispanic uh, uh, votes in November. Uh, if 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 the big if for Trump is he, we have to see uh, you know a a uh, this disease uh, go into remission. We have to see some better you know treatments and so on. Right. If people feel like we're winning the war against the virus and the economy is getting better. I really do think that in the end of the day, I don't care what the polls are. You know, John, I was working for Trump in 2016. In August of 2016, uh, CNN and all the political pollsters said Hillary Clinton has a 90 percent chance of winning the election. Wow! And these are the same people who are doing the polls today. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, it doesn't count now. And also, I think what's happening is because there's an—you see this. I I used to help with the AP's exit polls. Right now, what the polling companies are doing is they're suppressing uh, Republican answers in the poll because they're afraid that there's too much enthusiasm for Trump and they're overmeasuring. But I I actually think that that's probably suppressing Trump's performance in these polls. When you see a 24, 25, 26 sample of Republicans when the normal— uh, sample would be 31, 32%. Um, the polls are being suppressed. Now, I understand why they're doing because the Trump uh, supporter is so much more enthusiastic than the Biden supporter. But I suspect as we get closer to election day, those numbers are going to adjust. And, uh, you know, we're going to see uh, this a very tight race uh, heading biggest, into election day. The
2: biggest, the biggest problem I think we have is. Um, is the millennials. I've been looking at these numbers. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it's it's like 75, 25 for, for Biden. Wow. Uh, This is this generation that it's troubling to me because they do not value freedom. They value safety and security uh, over freedom, and that's an, and and they also don't believe in the core idea of American exceptionalism. They don't believe in that. And then you, cross your head why? Why don't they understand right. the exceptionalism of America? And John, this is where you know I have two millennial sons who are, and I'm always ragging on them. And finally, they, <laughs> they got so angry at me. They said, "Well, Dad, who do you think made us this way?" Ah, and you know, that's Jay, a good comeback.
0: We, yeah, that's a good comeback. <laughs> yeah,
2: we we have allowed we we baby boomers have allowed the left to take over the social the this all the social institutions in america most importantly the schools and and these millennials all they're doing AOC is a is a smart woman she she's is. just regurgitating everything she's been taught since she's been in kindergarten
0: yeah the, the targeting of the university agendas, particularly because the, it, there's a, the 25 percent. When you look at the gap in millennials, often it's non-college educated millennials that uh, are still more traditionally in tune with Americans values. That's but those who went point. to higher education. Wow. And it's, it's like a whole generation just got a, a dose of brainwashing or a dose of indoctrination. I don't want to call it brainwashing, but indoctrination in these schools. And I, how do you you know, that, that gives uh, Democrats a 20 year jumpstart on the next round of elections. What do conservatives need to do if they want to even the field on that again?
2: Well, I think there's a couple issues that Trump really could capitalize on right now. Uh, one is, I, I, I've been an advocate of school choice for, you know, 30 years. Right. I think it is the single, I mean, Trump has put it very right and it it infuriates uh, liberal Democrats, but it happens to be the truth. The single most important civil rights issue of our time is, is school choice. If you really want... Black uh, economic prosperity, and we all do. The single most—it's—it's it's not a you know, fight, racism. I mean, it's this: that that Black American children, minority children, and poor uh, ch- people from poor white homes are forced to go to horrible schools yeah. in the inner cities. And by the way, it's not a lack of money. I mean, New York City is spending $20,000 per student. Wow. And they're getting the worst possible results. And and this is, you know, you know this, uh, John, because you're a, a, stu- a stu- student of politics, but, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis probably would not be governor in, in Florida today if he had not been such a strong advocate of yeah, school choice. And he won tens of thousands of black women votes and black women are the most democratic of they any uh, voting group. But this is an issue. You know what, what uh, black women care more about than, than the Democratic Party? Their kids. The educating their kids. Yeah. And so I think that's a great issue for Trump. And he's been a hero. He said, look, if the schools aren't going to open up, if the public school in your area isn't going to open up this fall,
0: Let's give them the why
2: money. not give a $10,000 voucher to those parents so they can either homeschool their kids or send them to a, a, a Catholic school or a Jewish school or a Montessori school or, a you know, a, a, my wife is is forming a little... You know, five or six person, you know, with other parents, they're going to have their own school.
0: Isn't that great? Wow. American Innovation Network. Yeah, no, (laughs) this is a moment. The pandemic may actually be an unexpected opportunity for school choice to revive. I was in Wisconsin when Tommy Thompson and the Democratic. Uh, assemblywoman from Milwaukee, Polly Williams, uh, first embraced school choice. And and in that city where schools were failing for so long, the enthusiasm of everyday parents to just realize I got more than one choice now was very palpable in the late 80s and early 90s. And it seems as though the pandemic may have uh, accidentally put that back on the front burner in a way that we couldn't have imagined. Teachers unions, though, are a big obstacle in this, aren't they?
2: Well, you know, teachers unions, I think, um, have so overplayed their hand in this pandemic. You saw what happened in Los Angeles uh, uh, school district, where I think they said they have something like twenty five thousand teachers. And, you know, they said not only are they not coming back for health reasons, they said we're not going to come back until we have Medicare for all. Higher tax on the rich uh, green new deal. And, you know, at this point, you just have to say, okay don't come back. We can find other people to teach our kids. (laughs) I mean, really, seriously. I mean, why do we turn our, our schools over to those people? They are the most liberal people in America. Uh, they don't teach American exceptionalism and they, they do teach this victimization culture, which I think is, is very subversive, frankly. And so, um, I, I do think that we could see the dawning of a new age of, uh, letting parents send their kids to schools that work. Every child is different. I have, uh, you know, four kids myself, and every one of them is different. Everyone has different needs, different interests, different levels of academic achievement. Uh, By the way, the shutdown of the schools has been one of the more catastrophic um, consequences of this lockdown. Right. We now know the bottom fifty percent of achievement of kids, the ones who need schooling the most, have gotten almost zero education. They're not doing the online distance learning, right. and we're going to do that for another six months. Mm. I mean, this that has very long term negative yeah. consequences for these uh, for these children. And the children are really the lockdown um,
0: victims. Victims, yeah. Yep, you would have wished that adults could have figured this out better, but we, we haven't. I want to take you to one place more because I think we're going to hear a lot about it tonight because uh, uh, Joe Biden will have to push this way in order to keep his uh, progressive side of the party in line. Uh, green energy, the uh, the we need to be a cleaner energy economy. We're going to do it right this time. We won't do Cylindra this time. California has had a series of rolling blackouts during a very hot summer in California. Um, is that a sign that the grid implementation that the Obama Biden ticket tried to create this clean green energy has failed? Is California sort of it was California was supposed to be the proving ground for clean energy? Does the rolling blackouts this summer have some connection to the failed implementation of that policy?
2: there's no question about that. I mean, uh, California has shut down their coal and their natural gas plants, Uh, not entirely, but almost entirely. There's no backup right now to to wind and solar power. Look, um, this is really a simple one. I mean, I've maintained for the last 20 years that the radical climate change agenda is an albatross around the neck of the Democratic Party. Um, We have look what what the reason the U.S. economy got out of the last recession it had nothing to do with Obama's policies. It, you can really summarize it in uh, in four words. Shale, oil, and gas. Right. It was a revolution in American energy overnight because of these incredible new technologies. We more than quadrupled the amount of oil and gas we thought we had. By the way, while this was going on, Barack Obama was running around the country saying we're running out of oil in the United right. States. Like, President Obama, we're not running out of oil, we're running into it big time. <laughs> so we are now the number one oil and gas producer in the world. We have 500 years worth of coal. We have uh, Illinois. I was talking to my friends. Illinois, Illinois has more B- BTUs of, um, of energy than Saudi Arabia has. It's so rich and, 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 and coal and other resources. It, natural gas is the wonder fuel, John. I've described it as the wonder fuel many times. It is abundant. It's made in America. It's cheap it's efficient, and it's clean burning. It's everything that you want in an energy, right? right? Everything that you want. And these left-wing environmentalists are against it. I mean, how could they be against something that's a clean burning fuel that's reducing our carbon emissions? We, the United States has reduced its carbon emissions more than any other country. All these countries that signed the... The Paris Accord? The, sorry?
0: The Paris Accord?
2: Yeah, the Paris Climate Accord. All of those countries... Are, are, are not even coming close to meeting their targets. Gee, that's a shock, right? Yeah. That they wouldn't honor their treaty agreements. The country that's not part of the, the Paris Climate Accord, the United States, we are reducing our carbon emissions and it has very little to do with, with uh, windmills and solar power. It's almost all, all a result of, of this conversion uh, to natural gas. Look, I believe in all of the above. Let's use natural gas. Let's use oil. Let's use coal. Let's use nuclear power. In some states, you know, uh, wind and solar power can be Efficient, but this idea that we're look, Joe Biden says by the year 2035, which is only 15 years away, John, we're going to have zero zero carbon. Uh, i mean zero fossil fuels zero it's, i mean that is lunatic yeah, I mean, there's no way right right even
0: here? with the great innovative spirit of america there's no way you can hit that that uh agenda it's a it's a it's an empty promise just based on reality i mean they couldn't even hit the epa targets for car fuel efficiency that obama got a lot of praise for we never hit them well and, the,
2: but the important point about this is think i i actually think this is the reason that uh biden is going to lose pennsylvania he's going to lose ohio he's going to lose west virginia he's because we have now 10 states even new mexico new mexico is a major oil and gas producing state so is colorado trump has to you know remind people in these states because the oil and gas industry creates eight million jobs Yeah, and say so, these people talk about what is their thing they call themselves made, made in america or whatever right. their theme is made in america we're making oil and gas <laughs> we're the energy superpower and they want to make us use more expensive energy which is going to mean that china which is going to by the way china every time we shut down a coal plant in the united states john china builds 10 of them
0: isn't that crazy yeah.
2: How in the world are we reducing, you know, yeah. global climate emissions when all we're doing is decapitating our own jobs? And, and I think the American people kind of
0: understand that. Well, look,
2: we all want clean air and clean energy, but you have to do it in a way that doesn't destroy the American economy. And the, and the Biden plan would do that.
0: That is the key, I think. I think fine. And I think for the future of the Republican Party, because millennials clearly have a passion for the environment, uh, the Republicans are going to be able to, I think, over the next few years, lay out a way that you can go about improving the climate, improving uh, pollution without having to take away our jobs and making John, us all homeless. Why is, it, yeah.
2: why is it the left is against nuclear power? Yeah, nuclear it's a, power is it's amazing, zero isn't it? emissions. Yeah. Zero.
0: yeah <laughs> and and it's been time. unbelievably safe. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's such a great point. All right, last question for the day. I'm going to let you go. Uh, When we look out at the um, agenda of the Democratic Party, the agenda for the Republican Party, one thing that is going to hit both parties soon is just the overwhelming debt that America has accumulated, particularly in the Obama years. Obviously, we've spent very heavily during the pandemic because of the shutdown to, to prop up the economy. The next president, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump, is going to have to do something like what Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton did, which is wrestle these budgets to, to the ground. Do you think Republicans and conservatives have a plan for getting debt deficit con- under control? No,
2: no. no. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Actually, it's a sad. It's a sad uh, scenario because yeah. you know Republican Democrats want to spend. You know, I think how is this price tag of uh, the Wall Street Journal reported the other day that the uh, Biden plan would would spend about five to seven trillion dollars yep. more money over the next decade, and we've always say, "Well, we only want to spend half that amount." You know, yeah. so, gee, I thanks. Mean, <laughs> you know, why not, why not go with the uh, with the uh, with the uh, Mercedes Benz rather yeah. than this person. But uh, look, I think that the solution to our budget problem and our debt problem, which you're right, is is enormously burdensome, is we've got to grow. We've got to grow the economy. We've got to get people back to work on jobs. We've got to get America number one in every strategic industry, whether it's manufacturing or construction or, the, you know, the incredible uh, technology industry that we have. Grow, grow, grow. That's the John F. Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump philosophy, is that growth solves all problems. And, yeah. you know, I, I think that uh, given that there's not a lot of appetite for cutting spending, you know, let's get more tax revenues in, right. not by raising taxes, but, but getting America back to order.
0: Yeah. And it, we learned from uh, a little tiny experiment by Rick Grinnell that we probably could shrink the government and no one would notice because he went into ODNI and sent all those employees home and uh, we're not any less safe. And the ODNI is still doing its job every day. I suspect there's an enormous opportunity to find the triplications in in the uh, federal government and get rid of them without you know removing the missions that people support. Um, do you think Donald Trump will have that in a second term? Do you think he'll shrink government? One of the,
2: one of the things I've. Urged him to do, and I think it would be so smart. I'm frustrated I haven't had have more success with him on this. Is he needs? I don't know if you remember, John, uh, when Ronald Reagan first came into office, he had something called the Grace Commission. Do you I do. remember that?
0: I do remember that. Yes,
2: it, a lot of people who are younger have never heard yeah. of it. But it, it was a you know a multi million dollar privately financed uh, commission, uh, uh, you know, appointed by Ronald Reagan to go through every nook and cranny of the United States government, every agency, and find out where there was waste and inefficiency. These were some of the leading CEOs of the country. And they went through and they found, you know, billions of dollars of, of, of waste and fraud right. and inefficiency. By the way, that was, what, uh, 40 years ago when, right. when billions of dollars was a lot of money. Lot of money. So, yeah, now I it's mean, like nickels, Yeah. What I've told Trump to do is do your own grace, do a new grace commission and wow, identify a great the incredible idea. waste and inefficiency uh, of, of our government and and redundancy, redundancy. We have 82 different job training programs. You know, we have 56 different special ed programs. I mean, you got to consolidate. you got to get uh, like I'd love Fred Smith, the CEO of FedEx, a, guy yeah, a good friend and one of the greatest CEOs in American history. Yep. Let's yep. Ha- let's have the Smith Commission and go through and find ways we can save money because Americans hate waste. And there's a lot of waste in government. And and that's a bipartisan issue, John.
0: Yep. No, that's exactly right. And it hasn't been on the table really for about 15, 16 years. Quite frankly, even in the Bush years, with all the homeland security spending, it just never was a prior. I think it would have been a priority for Bush if 9-11 hadn't happened. But uh... John,
2: let me give you one example. I mean, this is very pertinent to the time we're in right now. So we've been spending um somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 billion dollars a year on um, on uh, the center for disease control yep. and that's a lot of money that's a it lot is. of money and we have a major uh, you know we have a major pandemic and these things come around every 30 or 40 years and they're completely unprepared And then you look at the website of, gee, what has the CDC been doing the last, uh, you know, uh, 20 years? Oh, it's all been stuff like, um, you know, LGBTQ issue and, uh, you know, climate change and uh, all of the stuff that has nothing to do with its core mission, which is to prepare us for a pandemic. And because they took their eye off the ball, they caused trillions of dollars of damage uh, to our economy. The solution isn't to just give them more money. It's to say, focus, focus yeah. on what you're there to do. And that's a problem with a lot of government agencies. It's called mission creep. And it's very, uh, you know, every single agency in government now has a climate change office. I mean, come on. Yes. Really? Yeah.
0: It's uh, it's pretty it's pretty remarkable. And uh, there's a great opportunity, I suspect, in a second Trump term, if there is one to to do so. And uh, we'll, we'll have to see if history allows for that to happen. Well, Steve, I could talk all day with you. You are an amazing thinker, and uh, I'm so grateful you were able to spend so much time with us today. I know our listeners are going to love this, and maybe we'll try to get you back before Election Day to handicap the final stretch. Thanks, John. All right, Steve. Folks, you've been listening to Steve Moore. How lucky have we been? We're going to go to a quick commercial break, and we'll wrap things up. At factormeals.com. One more time, factormeals.com slash just news fifty. Use the just news fifty code, and you will get fifty percent off your first order. All right, folks, we're back from the commercial break. And uh, let's wrap things up for today. That that conversation with Steve Moore is something to remember. A lot of food for thought about the future of the economy, about the blue state, blue city flight that America's enduring. We have to ask ourselves if those policies in those blue states are so good. Why are people fleeing it by the millions? Um, you heard about the ideas that Steve uh, has for the president's reelection campaign, the messaging. What could happen in a second term, whether uh, Trump or what could happen in a, sec- a first term for Joe Biden? The differences between the candidates, what's at stake in this election? That's the sort of conversation we're so proud to have here at John Solomon Reports at Just the News. It wasn't an interview. It's a conversation. I hope you benefit from that. I hope you like that. If you enjoy this podcast, if you enjoy the news that we produce at Just the News.com, remember there's something you can do. Sponsor by support our incredible Advertisers, our sponsors, the people who make this show possible. We're so grateful. We'll be back on Tuesday with a new edition of the podcast. Until then, be safe, be happy, enjoy your families. And of course, when you need a news fix, go to justthenews.com. We have all the breaking news and so much more. You've been listening to John Salomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. We'll be back next Tuesday with our regularly scheduled show. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group.